0: Morning to worship and open up the word. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This will be the, uh, the final message in our short series on, um, dealing with the topic of is the Lord's Day the, the Christian Sabbath? And so we started out by just trying to look and see um, how do we even think through an issue like this? Where do we get our light? How do we approach the Word and and how do we look to the Word as our authority? And our short answer to that was that... Um, at a Matthew 4 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so we want to use Scripture as our, our authority by making sure that we base what we practice and what we believe on what God has actually said. Not what we can imply, not what we can infer, or not what we can assume, but what is actually said. And so then the next message we looked at the Sabbath and tried to figure out or, or uh, see from the Old Testament what kind of an institution is this? Is it connected with the Mosaic Law? And if so, um, as we got to the next message, the question was how much of the Mosaic Law, as far as um, the Sabbath is concerned, bleeds over into the New Testament? Does the New Testament actually um, require or even hint at uh, the Lord's Day being a carryover of uh, the Sabbath. Of course, if you were here, you know our answer has been no. And so now the question is, in our final message here, how should we observe the Lord's Day? How should we observe the Lord's Day? This is a question that uh, really the, the first message was always leading to. So if the Lord's Day is not the Christian Sabbath, so that there aren't all these prohibitions and restrictions and and things that you can do on uh, Monday through Saturday that just cannot be done on Sunday, if that's if that's not the case, then, then how do you observe the Lord's Day? Whenever we look in the book of Acts, the first day of the week is whenever the Christians gathered. In Revelation 1.10, John refers to it as the Lord's Day, and as he does that, At this point, by the time he writes Revelation, it had um, been called that and it was such a familiar expression that that's all he uses and assumes that his, his readers will know what he's talking about. And so the question for today is, how do we observe the Lord's day? What are we to do with this day? Now, before I read in Acts 20, I just want to say that for this afternoon, Um, If you notice on the four-year table, I've got some note cards setting out and I've got an envelope. And so if you have any questions about this series that we've uh, gone through, whether it be today's message or any of the previous three, if you'll write those questions down on a card and put it inside of that envelope, then we'll look at those this afternoon. Uh, The plan was for this afternoon that Brother Caleb uh, Brown was going to bring the message, but he and his family are sick and... um, and so he let me know that. And so what we'll do this afternoon is, uh, rather than me trying to come up with a message on the fly, uh, is if you have any questions, if you want any clarifications, if you'll just write those down, put them in, in the envelope, then I'll do my best to answer those. And then if not, we'll spend some time singing together this afternoon. Okay, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Again, the question here, how do we observe the Lord's day? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, And upon the first day of the week, okay, that's the Lord's day, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And then this story goes on, this narrative goes on, and this is where Paul preaches into the night, and uh, Eutychus falls asleep and falls out the window and dies, and um, Paul goes out and, and and heals him, brings him back to life, and they just keep on going with the uh, with the church service. And we could get a lot out of this, but the 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 question that we're asking is, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, Acts 20 gives us a window into what the early church was doing. Number one, out of verse 7, on the first day of the week, the disciples, we could say the church, okay, the disciples came together. They assembled. They, they made a priority of coming together. And they came together for two reasons. Number one, it says that they came together to break bread, okay, to break bread. That's just a phrase that's used particularly in the New Testament to, to communicate that they were having table fellowship. Okay, It wasn't just the fact that they were having a, a potluck that had nothing to do with anything. They were coming together to have fellowship around a meal. We've talked about this before in the past, about how in... Um, the uh, ancient Near East and even in Eastern cultures now that the table is a very special place for fellowship. If you have fellowship or table fellowship with someone, you're being welcomed, you're being accepted, you're being brought into a very warm, special relationship with that individual. And so, number one, they were assembling together for table fellowship or uh, what the New Testament goes on to call one anothering. Okay. Secondly, they gathered together or assembled together for the preaching of the word. Or, we'll, we could put a blanket statement on that and just say for public worship. Okay. Corporate public worship. In this particular instance, it talks about the fact that they they gathered together and Paul preached unto them until midnight. Now, when you're looking through the New Testament to see what is it that the saints of God do on the Lord's Day? What is it that the saints do and are called to do when they gather for public worship or when we think about Corporate worship, Um, there's one big thing. And then there's two things that happen after the one has. Okay, So number one, the priority on the Lord's Day is that you assemble. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10 in a minute and see that as well. That you assemble, that you come together. Why do we say it that way? Because if you don't assemble, you can't do the other two. Okay. You are to assemble for two things. Number one, corporate worship. We gather together and we sing praises to the Lord corporately. We gather together and there is someone who opens up the word, who preaches the word. We gather together and we pray corporately. But this is the the key word here is corporate. The, The church is not an individual. The church is a group. And so we assemble to worship the Lord corporately and we assemble to fellowship with one another. Now you can read from the Gospels through Revelation and you can take note of What is it that the epistles, what is it that the gospels, what is it that the pastorals are are encouraging, calling the people of God to as they gather together? And I would submit to you that whatever you find falls in one of these two categories. We come together to worship the Lord corporately and we come together to fellowship with one another. Now you say... Well, shouldn't worship be going on, you know, seven days a week? Yeah. Yeah, every day is an opportunity for you to worship the Lord. You can worship the Lord individually, worship the Lord in your families. But the Lord's Day is the day that you prioritize and you set aside to prioritize your assembling with the body of Christ that you've committed yourself to for a special day of worship, special in the sense of Everything else we do on this day is scheduled around the main thing. And that is assembling together. That is fellowshipping together. That is ministering and one anothering amongst ourselves. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Okay, so go to Hebrews chapter 10 and we'll talk about this in a little more detail Hebrews chapter 10 Starting in verse 19 Hebrews 10:19 Having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, I took the bigger chunk here starting in verse 19 instead of um, in verse 24 or 25 because in this section... As individuals, we are exhorted to do a few things. Number one, we're exhorted to draw near, verse 22, with a true heart and full assurance of faith based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. The fact that He's our High Priest. The fact that He has made a new and living way. We are called to draw near with a true or a sincere heart in full assurance. We're also, verse 23, called to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he's faithful that promised. That is, we're to um our, our our profession is to persevere. Okay, we're to hold fast to that. The trust, the faith that we've placed in Christ is to be fixed and steadfast. Okay. And we say that and, and, you know, I don't think anyone here says, well, that's a big surprise. I can't believe the New Testament calls us to those things. To draw near with a, with a sincere heart, to hold fast to the profession of our faith. But what's interesting about this passage is that this passage directly connects you drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, and you holding fast your profession of faith with assembling with the saints, with us provoking one another unto love and to good works. What's the point that I'm making here? Well, the passage here is connecting the fact that if you are going to long-term continue to draw near with a sincere heart, if you're going to hold fast the profession of your faith, if I'm going to do those things, I'm going to need you and you're going to need me. We need to be stirred up. We need to be strengthened. We need to be comforted. We need to be exhorted. We need to be, well, according to the New Testament, 59 needs that we have that Scripture says we ought to be helping each other in. And so he says in verse 24, since we need to be drawing near with a true heart, since we need to be holding fast the profession of our faith, we also need to be considering one another, how we can provoke each other unto love and to good works, not forsaking, the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is or as the habit or custom of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, so let's talk again about this business of, of assembling because when you, when you look at Hebrews 10, really whenever you look at the New Testament, you find that there is a lot of liberty as to... Um, when the body, as far as the Lord's Day goes, and really throughout the week, when the body chooses to assemble. There is no chapter and verse that says song service has to start at 10.30, preaching has to end at 12. There's no verse that says any of that. That's good practice and it's fine and that's our schedule, but, but we have the liberty to choose what time or times that we will assemble. There's not a New Testament prescription for this. And so while we no doubt find in the book of Acts that the Lord's day was set aside, the first day of the week was set aside as a day that prioritized assembling, worshiping, fellowshipping. Okay, The the exhortation in Hebrews, contextually, I would argue, goes even beyond Sundays. So sometimes people say, you know, the thing about Wednesdays is they're just not in the Bible. Wrong. The exhortation is not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So, again, we have the liberty as a body to choose what time or times we're going to meet. But... Once we establish those times, times that the body is going to assemble as a New Testament Christian and as a member, now we're thinking about Ripley Church at this point, as a member of Ripley Primitive Baptist Church, your commitment and obligation toward God and this body is that aside from a providential hindrance, assembling with the saints for worship and fellowship, is gonna be your number one priority. Okay? Now I will say on Wednesdays, if you're if you're if we're going throughout the work week and there are some hindrances with a work schedule, okay, you know, that's fine. Those kinds of things happen. But whenever we're talking about coming together on the Lord's Day and assembling, you ought to be using the six days, right? two through seven, to make sure that day one is freed up. Your commitment to the Lord Day is not a one-day commitment. It's a seven-day commitment. It means that you're going to spend the last six getting ready for the first one. Now, there are, let me just say this, there are lines of work um, that would include providential hindrances, such as jobs in the medical field, law enforcement, and those kinds of things. Now, whenever you end up working, trying to work out, how do we handle this sort of thing? Well, if there are times where you have to work, And the truth is, if you've ever had a medical emergency on a Sunday or if you've ever had an emergency that required law enforcement on a Sunday, more than likely, you were praising the Lord that you didn't go for help and they didn't say, please leave your name and number. We'll get back with you on Monday in the order of the calls that we received. Hopefully, you'll still be okay. Okay? You've been thankful that's not the case. Um, And so... When when we think about those kinds of things, there's probably other jobs that would fall in line with that. How do we prioritize? Well, one of the ways that we can prioritize is just by letting our workplace know, hey, if I can have Sundays off, that's my preference. I'm not signing up for that. Um, I'm going to do my best to be in the house of the Lord. But I understand there may be some times where people who need to be cared for and emergencies and things like that are going to come up but brothers and sisters unless you're in one of those kinds of things where there's a necessity you know Jesus said even on the sabbath it's lawful to do good on the sabbath to heal rather than kill now that's far different than saying i got an early meeting on monday so i'm going to go ahead and and leave on sunday just so i can Kind of take it easy, you know, and get there and not rush myself. Okay, That's far different. That's far different than scheduling something on Sunday that doesn't have to be on Sunday. The truth is you don't get to schedule your medical emergencies. They just happen. You don't get to schedule the times that you need law enforcement to intervene. That just happens. You can schedule your work meetings you can schedule your priorities. And as a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say you do schedule your priorities. And this is why that I say that when you're thinking about the Lord's day, it's not just a commitment to one day. It's a commitment to using all seven days so that you are freed up to prioritize assembling with the saints for corporate worship and fellowship on Sundays. Now, sadly, and you know this is the case, sadly, many Christians have adopted the culture schedule. And they allow things like sports and other activities to have a higher priority than assembling for worship and for fellowship. Now, I want to be clear about this. Sometimes we can, we can get this kind of mixed up. The problem here is not that families are no longer committed to doing as much nothing on Sunday as they possibly can? Okay, here's what I mean. I was having a conversation with somebody last, well, was last week, the week before last. Whenever we were talking about uh, the the priorities on the Lord's Day, and most of you are familiar with the story, Chariots of Fire, and Eric Little, and fact that he was the olympic runner and he would not run on sunday well there's nothing wrong with that story that's a good story appreciate the guy's conviction he went on to to have a fruitful ministry and he obviously loved the lord but let me ask you this was eric little honoring the lord any more if the movie's accurate was he honoring the lord any more by sitting in the bleachers watching the race on sunday than he would have been running the race on sunday if he wasn't going to be assembled with the saints on Sunday? The answer is no. The priority was not do nothing. The priority was do something. And that something is assemble with the saints. Worship publicly, corporately, fellowship, interact with, edify one another. And so again, it's uh, I, I don't have any bone to pick with Eric Little or Chariots of Fire. Do with that what you will. But if you're going to have a conviction about Sunday, the conviction doesn't need to be, "Well, I'll just do nothing to honor the Lord." The conviction needs to be, "I'm going to do what He's called me to do," and that is, "I'm going to assemble with the saints. I'm going to worship the Lord because that's what He's called me to do. That's what He desires." And then I'm going to fellowship in a way that facilitates and ministers growth to my own heart and soul and to the heart and souls of the body. You see, the truth is, in a lot of ways, Sundays ought to be one of your busiest days. The schedule that you keep on Sunday. Now, I don't want to make this to be a a, a sense where you're, you're killing yourself or or I'm putting some undue burden but but Sundays ought to be a day that is prioritized it is prioritized for these two things Again worship fellowship um, Now the problem and again with as far as the culture goes, we shouldn't expect the culture to to really esteem the Lord's Day as far as just the culture of unbelievers. We shouldn't expect them to to esteem the Lord's Day. But the problem is that many Christians and Christian families uh, is that the priority of corporate worship and fellowship has been replaced with, quote, unquote, more important things. Why would you not show up to corporate worship on a Sunday morning? Well, there's a couple of reasons. A providential hindrance. You're sick. You're you're, um, uh, not feeling well. You need to recover or you need to not spread what you have to everybody else. And that's good. Outside of of a providential hindrance like that, that's outside of your control. The car breaks down on the way or whatever. Outside of that is because you got more important things to do. Okay, that's the only other reason. The Lord's Day should not take pla- uh, should not take second place to sports and recreation. Okay, but we got we we're, we're live in a culture right now where that's just normal. Okay, and I'm talking about normal for Christians. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we were out of town, and, and but, but I'll let you know this we got together and had a real sweet five minute devotion. No, it was real sweet. Okay, what that means is we got together and had a five minute conscience salve. That's what that means. The Lord's Day should not take second place to Family Day. Okay. It should not take second place to Family Day. What does that mean? Well, I guess it moves into my third point here. But the Lord's Day should not be reduced to the Lord's hour and a half because you've decided you've got better things to do on Sunday afternoon. Okay, So often, people are just checking off the Sunday morning box. And then they decide that the rest of the day is going to be devoted to family day or recreation or this or that. And you say, well, what's wrong with family day and recreation? Nothing's wrong with that unless you decide to schedule it over and above. As far as your priorities, over and above corporate worship and fellowship with the saints. Now, we said it already, but we have the freedom, we have the liberty to arrange our schedule at Ripley in a lot of ways, however we want to, timeline-wise. We could meet at 10.30. If we wanted to, we could meet at 8 a.m. We're not going to change. I mean, this is what we've been doing. But we've changed in the past. We used to have an evening service, and we decided back in 2008, whenever gas skyrocketed and we had people coming from far away, that it made a lot more sense for us to to eat together, to, to, to have another service in the afternoon. And so we changed that. Well, here's the point that I want to make. If you've decided to become a member or to, to continue to be a member at Ripley Church, we're not hiding the schedule. Okay, It's open. You know that already. Nobody's surprised that we're going to meet Sundays at 10. Nobody's surprised that we're going to meet again Sundays at 1.30. Nobody's surprised that we meet on Wednesdays at 6.30. And so when we start thinking about what is the problem with, with, uh, or what are the priorities for um, coming together, what are we supposed to be doing and what are the biggest hindrances? Well, in some ways it would be easier if we said, you know what, on the Lord's Day, what you need to really focus on is make sure that you don't spend any money, make sure that you don't have any fun, and make sure that you pretty much don't do anything except come to the Sunday morning service and then go home. But that's not what we're saying. We're saying on Sunday mornings, you need to prioritize everything else in the rest of your week. You need to, pro- you need to use Saturday night to set you up for Sunday morning. Okay, if you're dragging in Sunday after Sunday saying, you just don't know how tired I am, there's a problem with that. Unless you're working the graveyard shift and some sort of a something that you can't get out of, there's a problem with that. If you're dragging in on Sunday because you were watching Star Wars until 3 a.m. on Saturday, or I guess Sunday morning, okay, there's a problem with that. And the problem is not, now this is sometimes where we can get off, the the problem is not, oh, those people at Ripley, you know, they're just, they're self-righteous. They they don't understand. They can't put these man-made laws on me on what I can and can't do. You could say that if you want to, but God has called you to assemble on the Lord's Day and He expects you to do that. He expects you to prioritize that. And He expects you to be involved actively in that. It's not a day where you show up with your eyes half open, sitting on the pew like a knot on a log, and check the box off and go home and feel good about yourself. It's a day where real spiritual activity happens. Now... Again, the question here is a symbol for what? I've already answered it, but we're going to look at it a little closer here. A symbol for what? But again, just to reinforce it one last time before you even get to the what, if you can't get yourself here, nothing else is going to happen. I'm thankful that we have things like technology so that whenever people are sick, people have providential hindrances, that they can watch the screen and they can hear and see what's going on. I think there's times where that's a tremendous blessing. Shut-ins, people who can't get out again, people who are sick. I'm thankful. But you are not assembling with the saints when you log on to Facebook. You're not. That's not the same. You are watching the assembly, but you're certainly not entering into the assembly. All right. So assemble for what? Assembling for worship. Assembling for worship. Now, we've talked about this whenever we were in John 4, in John chapter 4, verse 22, Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, John 4, 22, says, You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now verse 23 Jesus says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, here's one of the realities that we get from this passage. It's in verse um, 23. The Father is seeking worship. The Father is seeking worship. Now why is that important? Well, so often we can come to church and we can grow cold and indifferent. Our commitments can wax and wane. And then, in order to justify ourselves, we say things like, no, I just don't get much out of the service anymore. I don't know what it is. I I show up and I'm just not getting anything out of it. Well, the worship service is not about you. Okay, the question is not when you assemble, what are you getting out of it? The question is, what are you putting into it? What are you giving? We are to give worship to the Lord. And the Lord is seeking worship in spirit and in truth, which which means He's seeking worship that is entered into with the whole heart, mind, strength. He's seeking worship through the truth, that is, through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as we proclaim truth, as we minister truth, and as we grow in truth. Now, you can be sure that if you're involved in worship, that normally you're going to get something out of that. It's going to be a blessing. God will bless you in your deed. But if you are primarily coming to use the assembly, as if we were all assembled to make sure you got something. Okay, You're here for the wrong reason. We're here to worship the Lord. Why? Well, because Revelation chapter 5 says He's worthy. He's worth it. Okay, it's a, We've talked about this before, but the word worthy and worship are very similar as far as the Greek roots. It's to um, to exalt the glory of God, the glory that is the weight and the worth of Jesus Christ together in corporate worship. And so, as we assemble to worship the Lord on 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 Earth, okay. Look 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 in Revelation five. So I don't make this statement, assuming you know what I'm talking about. Revelation five. Okay. In Revelation 5, there's this scene that John sees in heaven. There's a, a book that has seven seals that cannot be opened. And, and the Lamb comes and he opens the seals. And then, and in, in verse 9, it says, And they sung a new song. That is the, um, angelic beings who are assembled in heaven, those who are around the throne. They sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred, tongue and people and nation. And You have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth and I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times ten thousand and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth for ever and ever. Now, when we assemble together and we worship the Lord on earth in our respective churches, we're replicating what's going on in heaven right now. Okay, it's 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 really it's it's a foretaste of assembling together to exalt the Lord. Now, can you imagine this text? They 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 come together and they're saying, "Worthy is the Lord to receive honor and blessing and power and glory." And the four, verse 14, the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down. And the angels said, You know, I'm just not getting anything out of this. Can you imagine that? No, it wouldn't make any sense at all. Why? Because he's worthy. That's why. That's the point. The point is, Jesus Christ has done for us what is unthinkable. He has redeemed us out of the slave market of sin. He has brought us into the family of God. He has made us kings and priests unto God. We will reign on the earth. He has done all of this. Somebody says, well, yeah, He has done all of that, but why can't I just do this worship by myself? Why do I have to come together? Seems like it's a lot of man-made stuff going on in the church. And, you know, and I'll say there are plenty of plenty of churches with a lot of man-made traditions and those kinds of things. But, but, but I'll say this, the church is not a man-made idea. The church is Jesus Christ's idea. He's the one who's building the church. He's the one who said in Ephesians 3.21, the prayer that Paul prays that... that that God might receive glory in the church through Christ Jesus, world without end. Okay, so gathering together to worship in the assembly is not up for discussion as far as the New Testament is concerned. In the New Testament, when someone is converted, the next thing you see after baptism is they are joined to a church. They are part of the group. Why? Well, number one, because they gather together corporately to worship the Lord. Number two, and this is still a part of worship, it's just a different aspect of it. We assemble To fellowship. We assemble to fellowship. Look in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. What kind of fellowship should we be having? Well, in in Hebrews 10.24, He says, Let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, we're just looking at this text, and we'll, we'll talk about more ways we can fellowship in a minute, but just in this text there are three words that are used that ought to describe some of the fellowship that we're having. Number one, consider. Consider one another. Consider one another. That word means to fully observe, to ponder, to perceive. This is, a, this is an exercise in getting to know somebody. This is an exercise of being strategic, thoughtful intentional now the, the, the whole passage there verse 24 is we're consider we're to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works okay so the consideration is how can I help stir this brother or this sister up knowing what I know about them? You know, in a lot of ways, it'd be a whole lot easier for me to say your priority on Sundays should be don't fill up your tank with gas and don't buy fast food and don't do anything nothing is a whole lot easier than this. This is you invest yourself in the body that you've joined yourself to. And you consider, take inventory on your brother or your sister in Christ on how you can stir them up, provoke them unto love and to good works. Okay, the word provoke just means to incite. Again, the the stir up. Then the word exhort, exhort one another. Okay, that's our word for comfort that we talked about on Wednesday night so it's comfort and encouragement so this is an individualized exhortation that's based on the person so it's not so much well you know today when i go to the when i go to a symbol and and or even while i'm here you know how can i just be a blanket encouragement to whoever i mean that's fine that's good but that's not what hebrews 10 is saying Hebrews 10 is saying is that whenever you come together, when you assemble, you ought to be thinking, how can I provoke Martha unto love and to good works? How can I provoke Chris unto love and to good works? How can I provoke Aaron unto love and to good works? And I'll tell you this one tactic is not going to work on all three. It's not. <coughs> You are called to love and know the individuals in your assembly to the extent that you are intentionally seeking to provoke them to love and to good works in an informed way. What areas do people need to be encouraged? Okay? It's different for different people. How do people respond? What's different for different people? What's meaningful? What's struggle? All those kinds of things. It's different for different people. The point that I'm making here is that the fellowship that we have is personal fellowship. Um, You know, you can appreciate the fact that there are some times that you get around folks and um, uh, this happened to me recently um, where, uh, you know, you've never laid eyes on them and um, uh, they they're letting you know how much they love you and appreciate you. Well, that's okay. I don't know how true that is, but it's okay. It's nice, it's sentimental, but that's not the kind of fellowship we have. Um we were talking I was talking to Lily the other day and we were at a meeting last year and at the end of the meeting they had not just me but Abby and Lily and David come up and they were doing the handshake and um And Lily was saying, well, how am I supposed to respond to people that I do not know when they tell me how much they love me? And, you know, she was kind of laughing and just saying, that's kind of weird, Daddy. I don't know what to say. And so I just said, I love you, too. And (laughs) and I said, well, that's good. That's fine. Uh, And, you know, you're amongst strangers and and, uh, they're just expressing and trying to encourage. And that's that's fine. You should not treat the people that you have covenanted together with in your local assembly as if they're sentimental strangers. They're not. They're people that you have committed to, to stir up to love and to good works. And we could go through the church covenant and talk about how we've committed to do that. We could go through the New Testament and talk about how we're commanded to do that. But it's more than just a sentimental, oh, I just feel so good and welcome when I'm here. You should feel welcome when you're here. But you should also feel real fellowship when you're here and experience and be a part of real fellowship. So, our fellowship is, uh, is to be meaningful, um, it's to be characterized by love. It's to be characterized by love. John 13. This is the priority. Jesus says, John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another." Brothers and sisters, our fellowship should be covered by love. It should be motivated by love and it should be um, exercised in love. What do we mean by that? Well, it's a sacrificial giving of ourselves to our brothers and sisters. It's a sacrificial commitment to our brothers and sisters' good, to growth in Christ's likeness, not just in what we do, but in how we do it. At this point, somebody says, yeah, you know what? We do. We need to be a lot more loving. No, you need to be a lot more loving. I'm talking to you. Okay, I'm talking to me. This is a personal commitment that we come together, not in some standoffish way, not in some sentimental superficial way, but in a way that is congruent with what Christ says. This is how people will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another in a personal, intentional, sanctifying way. And again, somebody says, sign me up for the no spending on Sunday thing. That's a lot easier than this. And it is. It is. But the truth is, on the Lord's Day, the priority is not do as much nothing as you can. The priority is symbol, worship, and Fellowship. That's the priority. Our fellowship should be marked by love. Our fellowship should be marked by growth and edification. Okay, Look in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Speaking of believers who have been united together. In verse seven, it says, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, this is a fairly familiar passage for us, but. The passage is saying this unto every one of us. Who is that? Believers. Every born again believer is given. Every born again believer has been given something. What is it? Grace. But this is not the kind of grace to where we're we're talking about, you know, we've received grace and the forgiveness of sins. Well, that's true, but, but he's not talking about that here. He's talking about the grace of gifting, serving, abilities. To every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. That means that Jesus Christ has equipped every believer with a gift. Okay? Or a gift is not really right, but a gifting. Okay, it's, it's, it's not just one thing that you try to figure out and then do it for the rest of your life. But you've been given gifts. What's the source of that? Grace. Who's the distributor of that? Christ. Who determines how much? He does. Okay, the The, the picture here really is that Christ has scooped out the exact amount of grace that you need to use the gift that you've been given for the edification of the body. Isn't that, that's an encouraging thought, isn't it? We think, I could never do that. Well, of course you could. Because Christ has weighed out exactly what you need to do what He's called you to do, and then He's given it to you. Then the passage goes on. Why is it that He gave gifts? It talks about uh, various gifts of church leadership and, and um evangelists, pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets. But as we're thinking about gifts as a whole, he says in in verse 12, he's given these pastor teachers and these other three for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, the perfecting of the saints just means he's given these gifts for the maturing of the saints. And then he's given these gifts for the work of the ministry. That's not the pastor teacher's ministry. That's your ministry. Every saint has ministry work. Every believer has been given a gift that's been scooped out by Christ, given to you so that you might minister to the body. The pastor teacher's job is to help equip you for the work of the ministry that might not be a preaching ministry, but it certainly is a ministry of fellowship and edification. And for the edifying, the building up of the body. For what? Until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or mature man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is big stuff. In God's... Design of redemption, his vision, and it'll come to pass, but his vision is that every single one of his children grow into the maturity of the character, the full character of Jesus Christ. And one of the primary means that he's given me and you for that is each other. So we could think about that and in some ways say, wait a second, what? It's almost like he sent us to Harbor Freight. Right. He wants us to do that? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's what he wants. He wants the interaction that we're having. He wants the fellowship that we're having. He wants the love that we have toward one another. He wants the ministry that we're exercising toward one another. The care, the concern, the consideration to all lead to this further development in Christ likeness. This stirring up and provoking to love and to good works. And it goes on. That verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part that maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Again, he just goes on to elaborate a little bit on this speaking the truth in love so that we are no longer children, but we grow up into maturity, that is our head, that is Christ. And the picture is that every joint, verse 16, is joined together and supplying... The measure of every part as we make increase of the body and the body is edifying itself in love. Again, that's a big calling. That's a big calling. That's a high priority. That's so much more. It's not less and there's nothing wrong with this sort of interaction if this is part of it, but it's so much more than showing up, shaking hands, saying, I love you in the Lord, and then going home. There's real interaction going on here. There's real ministry going on here. As a matter of fact, we've mentioned it, but you can look through the New Testament. If you want a list of these, you can easily just Google 59, one and others and find the passage references, or I've got one I've got saved on my computer. I could send you if you wanted to easily, uh, quickly have a reference guide. But 59 ways that the Bible says it ought to mark the normal fellowship that we have. Normal fellowship that we have as believers. This is what we devoted the men's conference to. We talked about seven of these. And the encouragement was that we love one another. You love one another. That's an intentional priority for every Christian. That's an intentional priority for every person in the church. That we learn to comfort one another. That we consider and exhort one another. That we serve and bear one another. That we forgive and forbear one another. That we're hospitable to one another. That we're confessing our faults to one another. And we could continue to go on and on and on. You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord's Day... Is not set aside so that you can do nothing. The Lord's Day is set aside so that you could that you could exert effort in assembling, in worshiping, in fellowshipping that Jesus Christ might receive glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. That's a beautiful vision, isn't it? It's a beautiful vision a beautiful picture. And so when we think about how are we supposed to treat the Lord's Day, well, the Lord's Day is the day that we prioritize these things. There's plenty of different ways we could schedule this. I like the way that we have our services scheduled on the Lord's Day. I think it easily facilitates the priority of public worship and the priority of fellowship. We're able to enjoy a fellowship meal with each other on a weekly basis. What are you supposed to do when you get home? Okay, So typically we're out of here by 3.30. What do you do when you get home? The same things that you've been doing on Monday through Saturday. As long as you're not sinning, there are no prohibitions on Sunday. You say, well, is it is it okay to do this and is it okay to do that? Well, in some ways, Sunday's a day that you can set aside and prioritize to, be, to exercise hospitality at times. You know, you could carry it on further. Have folks in your home if you wanted to. Have some fellowship if you wanted to. You could set it aside for family fellowship if you wanted to do that. But the reality is, if I really go much more in detail as to what you're supposed to do after we leave here on Sunday, I'm just making stuff up. The priority is not, what do I do when church is over? The priority is entering into the worship service and actively participating in the spiritual fellowship in the body that Christ has united you to. And so may the Lord bless us to enter into these commitments, to prioritize these commitments. I'm going to assemble when the saints assemble. I'm going to worship, entering into giving worship to the Lord. And I'm going to fellowship in a meaningful way, considering on a personal level how I might stir my brother and sister up to love and to good works. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have spoken and that You have given that to us. And so Father, we uh, we recognize that in many ways what You call us to on the Lord's Day is even more difficult than that Mosaic Sabbath. You call us not to just enter in with our bodies, but with our hearts and our minds and our souls. Entering into worship actively. Entering into fellowship actively. Seeking to be a blessing to edify those whom you've joined us together with, those whom we love. So, Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to be intentional about observing the Lord's day the way you would have us to. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.